You are listening to Bicycle Retail Radio, brought to you by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. Before we begin with the podcast, the NBA would like to offer a sincere note of thanks to association member Bike Flights for their continued support of the NBA and retailers at large. Bikeflights.com is a bicycle shipping service and a supplier of bike shipping boxes offering low costs, excellent service, and on-time delivery. Since 2009, Bike Flights has made it easy for more than a million people, including individuals, bike shops, events, and cycling industry businesses, to ship bikes, wheels, and gear with confidence. They've been working to get more people on bikes, plus have been advocating for for safer roads and more and better trails to ride, race, and explore. Bike Flights is a company that's committed to sustainability. Learn more at bikeflights.com. Welcome to another episode of Bicycle Retail Radio, produced by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. This is MBDA President Heather Mason. Specialty bicycle retailers are the heart of the cycling industry. And since 1946, the NBDA has existed to strengthen these businesses through education, research, communication, and advocacy. The NBDA is a nonprofit supported by the membership of participating retailers and industry partners. If you're not already a member, you can learn more and join online at nbda.com. Today's guest is George Lee. He is a second-time guest on the podcast, a known retail expert with an unwavering desire to innovate implement, and take every business and everybody in his environment to the next level. Really excited to have him back on the show. His bicycle industry career is centered on strategic thinking, planning, and profitability. He is leading the retail strategy and operations growth plan of Conti's Bike Shop, the largest bicycle retail business on the East Coast. He joined us last year to talk about developing your retailer experience, leadership, and the importance of data. We will place the previous episode link in the show notes. Take a listen when you can. Today, he's joining us to go deep into your service menu and how you can use a scientific method when designing. There's lots going to be in this conversation. Listen in and listen again. George, welcome back to Bicycle Retail Radio. Thank you for being here again. Thanks, Heather. It was fun last time. I was pretty stoked when you sent the email and said you wanted to dive deeper into some of the topics. And uh, the one we're going to go over today is one of my favorites as well because of its impact. So thanks for the invite. Oh man, such tremendous feedback from our listeners about the past episode. I think we spent um, almost two hours and we dove into several topics, but the part on service menu pricing and strategy behind is something I've heard often referred to from our members. So I'm really thankful for the opportunity today. It's been like a year. So like, just catch us up before we dive in. How are you? How's your family? Well, first of all, it doesn't feel like a year. I swear it feels like maybe four weeks, five weeks. A lot's happened. But our eldest is 11 now, so he started middle school just this week. So that was a, a big change and probably harder for me than him, to be honest. But they're great. Lots of soccer. They don't really ride bikes that much, which is a little bit disappointing to me, but really enjoy watching them play soccer because they, they love it so much. And it's been great business has been spotty i think is the best way to describe retail for this year you know there's good start to the year slow and literally just in the last two and a half weeks has really picked up again and at least here on the east coast especially northern virginia area 
it feels like there's a lot more people out in the streets. My own theory is that people haven't been able to travel for two years. And this summer was the first time people could kind of travel freely and feel safe doing so. So I think a lot of people were out and about, not at home. And in the last couple of weeks with schools going back into session, people are back in the area. And it's it's been incredible in the last couple of weeks, the difference that it's made to our business, at least. It has been quite a roller coaster. I feel the same way. People were traveling so much during the summer and now we're getting back into routine and kids are going back to school. I do it. We're friends on Facebook. So I see your family out and about and I have an 11 year old too. So that transition to middle school, that is a big one, right? It's like my kid's not <coughs> anymore. <laughs> no, he's definitely a young adult. It's making me feel old. I'll tell you that. <laughs> you know, we all feel young inside, right? Mm-hmm. So just for our listeners who don't know about you and your role at Conti's, you know, you made a major shift over to Conti's previously from work on the supplier side. Can you give our listeners just a little bit of brief about your current role? Yeah, so my title is Retail Strategy and Operations Manager. That covers basically everything in the business. In addition to, I do all of the store design and managing of architect and general contractors for store build-outs, but all of the day-to-day operations, all the digital platforms we use to run the business, how we communicate, annual review processes for staff, payroll budgets, making sure managers have got things on schedule in terms of their payroll budget and the amount of staff they have, dealing with recruitment at all levels, the customer interactions, how the store looks, feels, the merchandising, working with the buyers to do inventory range planning, covering gaps on the floor, helping with marketing initiatives, ideas, and implementation at retail. And on the bigger picture side of things, planning out budgets for the year, growth goals, looking at what markets to go into, demographic analysis, helping the two owners of the company basically just run the whole operation every day. And with 18 locations and about 180 staff, I'd say about 60% of my time is solely dedicated to HR, talking to staff members. So what I just described, that's 40% of my time. The rest of the time is managing people, people to people. And, and that's great. There's ups and there's downs. Such a huge role. And I see you've been expanding. So congratulations on that. But managing uh, and forecasting right now for what we our needs are going into a year with such unpredictability. I'm sure that's a huge I don't know if that's a stressor or how you're handling that, but it seems like it's a big, important role for a lot of retailers right now. You know, it's always change. And this change that we're going through now is potentially a downturn in the economy. And whilst the cycling market's fairly resilient to those downturns, it doesn't mean that we're completely excluded from any impacts in the stores. So definitely scaling back on certain orders, being very cautious with budgets is kind of the the name of the game at the moment, especially heading into winter. Our southern stores in Florida have the reverse season. And that means that we often get a kind of barometer of what's to come by what happens in Florida prior to the season in the northern stores. So just really just looking at that. The expansion is going great. Two new stores, fantastic locations. A store in Boston, in Lexington, is off to a, a flying start and it's far exceeding our expectations for a new location. It's an incredible location. I think what we managed to do from a physical location perspective, amenity perspective with parking and being made a bike trail and the local demographics, 
that mint is the golden standard now for how we're going to look for locations going forward. Congratulations. Yeah, I'd like once I get out to Boston, I'll check that location out. But part of your position is designing the layout too, George. And in, in the wow, yeah. that be a lot of fun, right? That's the fun part. That's the bit that I enjoy the most. And to be honest, if I could do that all day long, I would love to do that all day long. It's great. Like having a blank canvas and being able to create the way the store looks, feels, and flows is it's pretty fun. Yeah. Fun, right? Well, all right. I want to get in because there's so much here. And, you know, I want to keep this to our normal episode length because we could go on, I think, the two of us for hours. <laughs> <laughs> but really, the past episode on retailer experience, leadership, and data, uh, there's lots of great things in there. And I keep coming back to, like, I feel like everything that you go, go I get a feeling, a sense that with your personality, the way you work, everything that you do is approached with like a scientific method. It's not just like a willy-nilly, let's do it this way and see how it comes out. So you're, you know, using analysis, you're doing research, maybe testing some theories. It's very systematic. So would you say that that is the way you approach things? And is there a reason behind that, George? I'm like jumping forward with your personality here. (laughs) I would say that's definitely how I approach things. There's always a balance of art and science, right, with anything that you try and do. So the science comes second. The, The creativity comes first. It's like the I wonder what if we did it like this, that kind of abstract thinking. But then you have to validate everything and make sure that what you're going to make and change is going to impact. So that scientific method comes into play to help that creative element uh, manifest. I feel like when we think about then the service menu, often we'll have our retailer virtual meetings and we'll talk about, let's say, service menu pricing. And we'll ask, we'll pull the retailers on the call, how did you decide what to you know, charge for your services? And the answer is most commonly, I'm sure you heard this. Well, we Googled other bike shops in our area. We saw what everyone was doing and we put ourselves like right in the middle or we made ourselves slightly cheaper. I don't think that's the best answer, right? It's definitely not the best answer. Just perpetuates the situation. And most retailers do that. And it's good to know from a competitive perspective what is happening. But what you should do or what you could do is look at how the service is going to best benefit your business. So for us, service pricing is based off of an hourly rate. And the hourly rate is calculated from the cost of doing business, payroll, lease, operating expenses, et cetera. And what we feel is commensurate with the quality and professionalism of the work that we actually deliver. So once we've established an hourly rate, that varies by market as well because the cost of renting is much higher in DC than it is in Florida. So once we've established that, that base hourly rate is then applied to every service that we offer. So then it's just a time-based allocation. And we round up and down to make the numbers look even on a menu or on a list. But uh, looking at what other people do is only going to cap you at your potential, really. The average consumer might be jumping ahead in our discussion here a little bit, but the average consumer will not look around, not shop around for service very often. Once they walk into your shop with the bike and 5 to 10% of our customers actually book ahead of time, 90% of people at least are walking into the store with their bikes. And at that point, it's a captive audience. They're not shopping around. You've just got to present with value the offering that you have. 
Yeah. And so I'm glad you brought up the cost of doing business. We did just release a new cost of doing business study. It was seven years since our last one. And part of that is we break down the percentage of sales of, you know, bicycle sales, parts and accessories, service, rentals. Surprisingly or not surprisingly, service has jumped to a much larger increase or part percentage of sales than it was seven years ago. So if you, you know, with this high margin area, if you're actually pricing it correctly, so it's profitable, there's a great opportunity there. And so I think our conversation is very timely today based on that research. It's really important that our listeners, you know, pay attention to this conversation because George, I'd like us to kind of walk through how our listeners can use the scientific method, you know, like step-by-step to analyze their current service menu pricing and how to make it easier for their customers to self-select maybe what services they need and then make the business more profitable. Sound like a good plan? Yeah, it does. Where do you want to start? Just at the beginning? I mean, we probably want to do some research. I don't know. Help me. (laughs) There's that area just before research. So the inspiration, the observation or the question that's driving you to make a change. And maybe it's this discussion we're having now for the listeners, right? And then there's, okay, well, what do I know about this? So when it comes specifically to the service menu, some of the things that you've got to ask is, there's a lot. I'm just going to list a few questions that I went through as while working at Specialized to design this menu with some coworkers. It's like, where are menus most commonly used? The most common interaction people have with a menu is actually at a restaurant. So there's actually a lot of research that goes into how you set up a menu in a restaurant from a psychological perspective. It's like, what pricing strategy do they use? How do they allocate the prices of the dishes, right? What items sell the most on the menu and why do they sell the most? And questions more specifically to bikes. How often do people get their bikes serviced? What is the average cadence with your regular customers in terms of when them coming into the store? And that varies depending on the market and the style of shop you have. What is the typical need when they come in for service? And we're talking about specifically a service menu item, not a general repair like a gear adjustment or a wheel true or a flat repair, but somebody's bought the bike and says, I need my bike serviced. It's like, okay, what actually needs to be done on the bike? And then what does your local competition menu look like? Actually pull up the menus and assess them from a kind of three-pronged approach, like the language used, the pricing structure, and the graphic design. Is it easy to read? Do you understand what the menu says as a general rider? Right, not as a person that knows how to speak bike. What are the current SKUs and the sales mix? And by that, I mean, let's say you have five items on your service menu. When you look at the number of units sold, what is the mix of those? Is it 10% one, 20% the other, et cetera? So mix refers to just the percentage of a certain attribute in a data set. So what is the mix of those SKUs that are on your specific service menu? What do the riders like about your service menu now? So a lot of the time, and I don't know why this is, but people won't go out and actually just ask their customers, hey, what do you like about my shop? What do you like about my service menu? And solicit that feedback on a wider level. In doing this process, I did a survey, this is years ago now, but did a survey of like 2,000 customers of a bike shop, asking them questions about what they like about the service menu, et cetera, et cetera and solicit some feedback. We did a 
$500 helmet giveaway. So you complete the survey, there's about 10 questions, and you get entered into a, a drawing to win a helmet. So you can do, do some really simple stuff to solicit that feedback. It's very easy. Everybody's got an email service they can use. Next thing to look at is how do people interact with your menu? Do they stand there and stare at it? Do they ask you questions about it? Do they just select one thing straight away? Which item are they selecting the most? Where is your menu? Do you even have a menu? I mean, that's another big thing is actually having a physical menu helps you sell more services, more grouped services. When somebody just walks in and says, I need a service, then there's a question about triage. But if there's an actual service menu, there's already a concept and a, a discourse going on in the customer's mind about, oh, these are some services that I could consider. And then what factors guide the selection of an item on a menu? And that's a really big one. That's where we, we're going to go a bit deeper into the specific answers because there's some really cool stuff going on there from a psychological perspective. Finally, how much knowledge does the average person have about bike parts and adjustments? And that's to assess what sort of language should you be using on a service menu and on physically and, and online. So this applies to both your in-store and your online menu, which uh, my own philosophy and People can do it differently, but my own philosophy is your online menu should exactly replicate, even if you can, a graphic design perspective, the same menu and in the store as well. So asking all those how, what, why questions around the interactions on a topic to kind of reveal and educate yourself, research that topic is key, the first key step once you have the idea of what you want to change. So many great questions there. As you were speaking, I'm thinking about all the bicycle you know, stores I've been into, all the different service menu. It is really an area that sees a lot of diversification across the industry, the way that retailers do it. George, this list of questions you just gave us really, really in-depth. And I'm thinking some of the answers could come out of our point of sales system, some from reviews, some from talking with our staff. But I'm assuming that you're suggesting that our listeners really sit down and spend some time on these questions. This is not something either to just be like, oh, riders like our services, you know, that they're all inclusive of a cleaning. Like, it's not just that simple, right? You really should spend some time with these questions. Yeah, don't assume, ask. Definitely the mantra, don't make an assumption. You can make an assumption, that's fine, but don't have a bias when the answer is different, like change your perspective on it. So once we sit down, we've got all these questions, we've got some great, you know, concrete answers, you know, either from answers we've solicited or from our point of sale system or our staff, what do we do next, George? Like, what's the next step? Well, that's where there's like a lot of creativity that you could do because that's a lot of information to digest. So I think the first step is to break down just in general how people interact with a menu and what affects the selection of items on that menu. So understanding those psychological concepts first helps frame up the rest of the design that you're going to do on the service menu. And there's um, two key factors that we I discovered during the research of how people interact with menus, which is called anchoring and priming. Both of those are a psychological reaction to a selection criteria. Let's start with priming because it's the most powerful one. Priming is where you drop in hints of a specific thing to encourage 
a selection or awareness of a state later when a question is asked. That sounds a bit elusive, but David Blaine, the mentalist, is excellent at doing this because throughout his presentations and even outside, so you go to a David Blaine, I've never been to one, but in reading about it, I found this out. You go to a David Blaine show or any mentalist's show and everything starts from the moment you sign up for tickets, the images used in emails, the images used in the foyer when you check in. They'll even tell the staff to wear a certain color shirt on a day to build up an influence on a subconscious level, a question posed by the mentalist, David, and he says, okay, draw an object. Now tell me a color. And everybody draws the sun and they write down the color yellow. And it's not because he's controlling them down the spot. It's because he's already planted the seed for those things to be in the forefront of most people's minds. So we're not looking to be that subversive on a service menu. What we want to do is focus in on what language can we use to help people better self-select. So then that, that feeds into a couple of the other questions. Primarily, when do most people get their bikes serviced? So everybody's welcome to go out and do their own research. I've done this a lot, over 10,000 data points on this one question alone. And the answer is 80% of those respondents is once a year. So if you think about it, somebody's coming in once a year, what could you name a service that would resonate with that person when they walk in and say, what service do you think I should get? Or they're perusing your website to figure out that service. And very simply, I steered away from the traditional pro competition or elite or gold, silver, bronze, and went with annual. Mm-hmm. So annual service speaks to 80% of the people coming into the business. Now, the rest of the names on the menu, you can do in a way that presents value or makes it makes sense. And the simple thing about that is once you have that established, the only thing you need to train your staff is asking the customer when they come in and say, I need a service, when was the last time you had it done? They'll say about a year ago, and then and your response is very simply, let me check the bike over, but it's likely you'll be wanting to get out annual service. It makes total sense. The priming is about that, making it relevant to the person. The second part of the menu is anchoring, and the shift away from the words being used and looks at the numbers being used on the menu. So anchoring is, it happens everywhere. It happens everywhere. Scenario, you go to a restaurant and you sit down for dinner, you look at the menu and you've got five bottles of wine on the menu. There's one at 80, one at 60, one at 50, one at 30, and one at 20. Heather, which one are you going to pick? Probably like the 50 or the 60. I don't know. I'm not going to go for the most expensive. I'm not going to go. <laughs> right. Let's say you went to a different restaurant on a different night and they had a bottle of wine for 500, 200, 150, and 60. Which one are you going to pick? 100 or 200? I don't know. <laughs> and it sounds crazy because you're like, wait, I just said 50 or 60. And I didn't tell you what varietal they are or what year they're from. Like, they could be the same bottles. For you know. And this has been proven, even if they are the same bottles, that the selection of the product, if the description meets the needs of the customer, priming, they will select based off of the level of services that are on the menu in terms of pricing. That anchoring effect is about setting a halo product. And every brand does this. You just look at the bike lineup. A halo product is the most expensive product in the line. 
They're not going to sell many of those. But off the back of that, they will sell loads, hundreds and thousands of the lower level products. You do the same with your service menu. So you just set up a, a Halo product. We call ours the total package at Conti's. And that's a full strip down and rebuild of the bike, but it includes all the consumable parts, tires, grips, cables, bearings, chain, chain set, et cetera. And we do the price, but we do it as a starting at price. So it's thousand bucks. So it says starting at $1,000 for the total package service. It is just an overhaul. It's a complete strip down and rebuild, but all the parts added. So your base level hybrid bike would be approximately 1000 bucks, But a DI2 equipped bike is going to be more like 2400 because the parts cost more. Mm-hmm. So you just have to work out how much it's going to cost and put that out there. And that's really just to show a Halo product. Now, it's a question for you. What type of bike shop a mechanic is able to do a $1,000 service. Gosh, I want to say any bicycle store, but there's so I think there's confidence that the mechanic has to have and exude to the customer. I don't know. Is that the right answer, George? <laughs> it is because that confidence, that professionalism, that presentation of value is something that every single bike shop can do. All you have to do is display that number and it instills a level of confidence in the customer that you are a good choice and that you can deliver that service if you go down the menu we've got five items on our menu and you want to reduce the price using your hourly rate to that third level that middle level product is the one you're going to sell the most and that's the one that should have the name annual service and then your hourly rate for that actual service itself and i'm going to diverge a little bit because the ratio of the Pricing is important. A study done by the San Jose Mercury News decades ago now, they looked uh, with Stanford uh, University, looked at the effects of pricing distribution on a menu and the self-selection of items by customers. They did the study with the San Jose Mercury News that had four products that they were trying to sell. And they took, it was a double blind study. So they took a telesales group and got that telesales group to call different customers in the San Jose area and they were selling the product at different price levels but with the exact same description on each one so one of the groups had 5 10 15 20 bucks a month one of the other groups had 5 10 15 30 bucks a month the other group had 10 15 20 40 bucks a month and what they found throughout these different distributions of pricing on the menu was that a specific ratio was needed to encourage the sale of a specific level of product. So that ratio is very simple. If you imagine your hourly rate is one, right? The next level up will be 1.5. The next level up from that will be 3.25, but the level below it will be 0.45. So that distribution there on, on that chart, we place our hourly rate what we call a semi-annual service and our annual service is that 1.5 times the hourly rate Mm -hmm. and having that mix from 0.45 1 1 1.5 3.25 and then the halo product on top of it dramatically impacts as a result which we can run when we get to the results section the the selection of it so anchoring and priming the uh, distribution of prices and the naming of your service SKUs is the most important thing when you come to design your service, mate. 
What does Ride It Daily Extended Service do for your customers? It protects and maintains their bikes. What does Ride It Daily Extended Service do for you? It pays you your shop rate for warranty and extended service claims. Why wouldn't you sign up for Ride It Daily Extended Service? It's only available to NBDA members, and you can find out more about rides at nbda.com. Blaupunkt, a global leader of high-quality car audio, is now producing a best-in-class foldable e-bike for the urban rider and commuter. After a three-year campaign in Europe, Blaupunkt e-bikes have arrived here in the USA. Blaupunkt combines affordability, portability, and durability in every e-bike manufactured. Blaupunkt has over 100 years service in consumer product design and quality. They continue that tradition in e-mobility. No other foldable Class 2 e-bike comes close to Blaupunkt in price, in portability, and in durability. For this reason, Blaupunkt plans to dominate the category for years to come. Blaupunkt is looking for quality IBDs across the USA. For more information or to become an authorized dealer, visit www.blaupunkt.com. That's www.blaupunkt.com. There's so much there, George. And for our listeners, we will transcribe this episode because I know you're going to like <laughs> dig into this. But yeah, the mentalist thing, I'm glad you brought that up because there is so much going on there. I've heard like, you know, Walmart or big box stores, even merchandise their stores based on this strategy, the anchoring and priming. Of course, you're right. But I mean, just your question to me about the wine, it's it's the simple things like that, but we do. It could be the same bottle and it doesn't, I'm willing to spend more just because of the way it's laid out. There's a lot here, listeners. It's definitely something first you want to start with knowing what your hourly rate is, like what you need to be profitable, and then you can put this into action. So here we have now we've we've sat with the questions. We're working now on designing a menu that focuses on these key factors, gets our pricing correct, gets our annual service where it needs to be there. People are able to self-select, but you're kind of guiding them (laughs) to experience that they're choosing something that's more profitable for you. So for our listeners who probably already have a service menu up, they already have websites dedicated to it. We're basically asking them to sit, to redo, and now create, print, and install a new menu and get the staff behind it, right, George? Exactly. Yeah. It really is that simple. You can go out and do your research yourself, but you could also just take a look at a website on Conti's and just pull that service menu. It's the exact same one we I was helping retailers set up while I was at Specialized and it works really well and all that philosophy has been put into it. One point I actually missed about that service menu is the language used. So we found in the research that a lot of people don't know what a, a bottom bracket is. They don't know what true wills means. So instead of a checklist of items on the service description, we describe in layman's terms the outcome of the service. And that really helped people understand and resonate with each one of the services rather than a checklist for the mechanics. But once you've got all that dialed, it's literally as simple as creating a menu, getting it printed, and installing it in the store. Training the staff is as easy as telling them, hey, here's the new menu. Take a look. Here is why we call these services these names. It's the priming effect. Here's why the prices are this much. It's why we have the halo price. It's called the anchoring effect. It's going to help us increase the sale of the annual service, which is the most profitable for us, but also the most appropriate for our riders because most people only get their bike serviced once a year. And on that annual service is all the things that they need to have done. And it's based off of our hourly rate. That's it. Staff are trained. Oh, don't forget to tell them to 
ask the customers, when was the last time you had your bike serviced? That's the, that's the key question. <laughs> Next, you've got to look at how it's actually performing for you. So you really test in the experiment now, and it's a live test. You can't beta test this. You've just got to put it into action and then review the numbers. So testing the experiment, you've got to pull up some framework. First one, you've got to make sure you're able to measure the mix of items on the menu. So having SKUs set up in the system correctly, making sure the staff know how to use them, retire your old SKUs. Don't just change the description of the SKUs. Bring in new SKUs so you can compare data in a, a concise way and make sure the staff can't use the old SKUs. I messed that up a few times the first time I did this, and it's, it makes it very messy when you're trying to look at the data. You're going to set yourself up to compare the old menu in terms of unit sales, profit from those services, and then overall revenue as well generated, not just from the actual labor, but from the parts and the labor too, because the, the goal here is to move people up from uh, what we call our semi-annual service to the annual service. I can guarantee if you, uh, anybody listening now goes and they haven't already implemented this service menu, takes a look at their data, and let's say the average store has about four menu items, and you've got the lower level, the second, the third, and the fourth going up in price. 80% of the units sold are going to be that second level service. But when you actually ask your customers how often they get the bike service, you will quickly identify that that third level service is the one that they actually need. So our goal is to shift people from the one they're buying right now to the one they actually need. So establish that data first based on those services that you have on your menu already. There's a lot here. And I'm just thinking for our listeners who, for some reason, you know, when it comes to service center pricing, and I do say for some reason, and I mean it, everyone gets really nervous about raising their prices, like just like committing to it, putting it on the menu, hanging up in store and, you know, going above like a $69 tune. But it really does come down to a measurable, you need to understand how much it costs you and, and have the confidence to put it out there. George, when you asked me about a thousand dollar tune up, I was like, uh, I don't know, every shop, but it is confidence. And, you know, looking at ContiBikes.com, I see, you know, I have a $900, 550 $255. And it is, it's making it easy for customers to understand what these packages will do. But there is, you know what I'm talking about, George, that little, has, that people get nervous, right? To, yeah, know. people are always worried, what happens when I raise my prices and I lose customers? I, I don't know how many times I've had that conversation with different retailers and, and actually gone through it with my team that I've managed at the time, but you raise your prices 10, 15, 20%, nothing happens. Yeah. Customers don't go away. You still do the same level of service. And in fact, when you introduce those Halo product items, you get higher end bikes coming in for service. Yeah, I would believe so. So a oh, great tip on adjusting the SKU in your point of sale system, I think is one that we would overlook, right? So how long do we have this new menu that we've implemented working before we actually start looking at some of the numbers that we can say, okay, this is working? Like, what's that time frame look like? Uh, it depends on the volume, the volume of bikes you have coming through the workshop. The more bikes you have coming through, the greater the data set, the quicker the assessment. But probably a month would be safe for most stores to start doing that review. Personally, I wouldn't look at it for a month and then do a deep dive and get all that data and compare units, revenue, profit from each one of the services with the new menu compared to the old menu. And I think a part you mentioned there too was making sure that the staff was 
really trained in saying like, when was the last time you had your bike service? We need to get the staff behind it. Any other tips there as we're, you know, introducing a new menu to the staff who might see that $900 Halo service and be like, you're out of your brain. And that's a very common reaction because it's a lot of money for most people. It's a lot of money for most people working in bike shops full stop. You could do a lot with $900 and just throwing up the menu and hoping it works is not a good strategy. Educating them on the specific elements of the menu and then how they use it to interact and the end goal, which is to sell the annual service, which is actually reasonably priced, is the key. And if you don't do the training with the staff, make sure they're asking that question, when was the last time you had your bike service and understand the goal that we want to sell an annual service. And the way the menu is set up, it almost sells itself, but you still have to have your staff on board. Otherwise, nothing ever works unless you have your team on board. So taking some time to explain the menu to the staff is always key. I want to ask you the question like, well, what if our numbers point that this is not working, but I really don't think that people aren't going to show up at your bike shop and leave. <laughs> like, I don't know. That happens, right? And you've just, you know, as much as energy as you put into something and the internal bias you have because you want it to work because it's yours, you just kind of got to get over it. If it's not working, you got to figure out why isn't it working and then adapt. And that's going, you know, you're just going back. You're analyzing the data, right? And at that point, you're drawing a conclusion, which is the last step in the scientific method. And then you're going to ask another question. Why isn't it working? Then you've got to do some more research and then go through the whole process again. So it's just constant evolution of your service menu until you get it right. I will tell you actually, Heather, that the service menu I'm talking you through today and the service menu that Conti's uses today is the fifth version of this cyclical process of research, testing, analyzing I've been through. And it's been very well refined basically throughout that process. So it's not, this one looks nothing like the first one. The first one only had the price and distribution. We didn't use a halo item. And we only changed one of the names. We didn't use a description that was descriptive rather than a checklist. And it worked okay, but we asked more questions and ended up back where it is. So if it's not working as you you expect it to, ask more questions. It's definitely a continual process. I was going to ask you, how often are we doing this? But it sounds like it's an ongoing, maybe annual deep dive, right? But then it, but it's always kind of ongoing in your response. Yeah, you know. You, you can find inspiration for things in really random places. The anchoring effect, I was listening to The Economist online on the podcast while I was mowing the lawn, and they were talking about the anchoring effect in a totally different context. And I was like, oh, hold up, wait, uh, now I get it. And then you start asking questions and go back to it. So the inspiration comes from more random places too. It's not just inside the store. Definitely. There's a point there I just want to pull back up for our listeners that I thought was really a spot on. You know, I remember when I had my store, it was like list out, clean the bottom bracket. You know, you listed every single thing out, but I love your advice there on just listing out or, you know, writing in a sentence how it's going to affect the bike. Your bike is going to be ready to go or, you know, you'll be good for the year. That's a great way that our customers can really understand exactly what you're doing if they don't have the bicycle lingo that we all do. Exactly. Yeah. The language is important. The goal with the language on any menu is to aim it at the lowest common denominator. And most people walking into your store don't know those things. So don't say those things. Right. 
Do you mind, George? Like, so, okay, so here we are. Our listeners should have a good run through of the service menu. Did I miss anything on that? Because I have some questions that listeners gave me. So since I have you here too, I want to ask you a couple of questions. We touch on everything with regards to the service menu. As simple as it seems, just a service menu, when you think about all the other things in your store, putting that type of approach to everything you do really helps to refine and increase rider engagement and profitability as well. But yeah, that's uh, what questions you got. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking we could do bicycle fitting. I mean, there's so much here, but I did have some listeners, like I said, who gave us some questions. So specific ones, I don't know if this is in your wheelhouse, but a question submitted from a listener was, we are backed up two to three weeks in service. And my employees are often working on one bike, like an easy flat repair for too much time. Any efficiency hacks to keep the employees focused? To keep them focused? Yes. Well, there's a few. So being slow in a repair can come from a couple of different places. Primarily comes from being interrupted. So the first thing you have to assess is, are my employees getting interrupted by sales team or customers? And a good tactic to address that is have your mechanics come in early. So instead of if the store's open 10 till 7, don't have them come in at 10 and finish at 7. Have the mechanics that I would classify as production mechanics, have them come in as early as they want. Who cares? 5 a.m. I don't mind because that time uninterrupted is hugely more productive and efficient than the time when the store is open. You obviously need some coverage for walk-ins and out-the-door checks, but having people come in early is a huge efficiency hack and backed up two to three weeks should halve that number very, very quickly. Also, interestingly, it frees up the bike stands so you can have more mechanics on the schedule and get work done quicker as well. The other element of mechanics not being efficient is they're just slow. And, you know, if you're just getting paid an hourly wage to do the work, you're just going to get the work done. And there's a couple of ways of addressing that. Just establishing goals is good. So I want this much revenue done or this many bikes repaired. Another element to that type of reporting is just kind of the gamification of those results. So print out on a weekly basis or a monthly basis, more regular, the better. Daily is a bit excessive, but how much revenue or how many bikes built or how many repairs done by each mechanic. People are naturally competitive and they will unconsciously start working faster to beat their coworkers just for fun. And then finally, if you really want to do the best hack for this, set up a labor commission plan. So just a, a set flat percentage, one, two, three, whatever you feel is appropriate and is manageable for your business, percent on all the labor that that individual completes and pay them. They will instantly get quicker. Oh, those are great ideas. Awesome. I didn't tell you I was going to ask you questions from our listeners. <laughs> I totally shocked you. All right. I got a couple more. Should I implement a service center checklist for my mechanics? So everything is systematic and done the same way. Yes and no. I think everybody should have one. And the reason I say yes and no, new mechanics need that. Established, experienced mechanics. Whilst there can be mistakes, one in every thousand bikes they work on isn't quite right. That happens. But you don't want to enforce a checklist on somebody that doesn't need it. That's pointless. It won't get used. It will just cause frustrations. And it kind of undermines their professionalism and ability. So 
one of the best ways I've done this in the past is don't create the checklist yourself. Get your best mechanic to create the checklist and, well, first get them on the side and say, hey, look, we've got new people coming in. We need kind of a standardized way to do check-in and check-out and just check over bikes for repairs or build bikes. Can you create a checklist of all the things you do in a systematic way that you can then train these new people on? Now you've handed over ownership. The mechanic that's writing it is going to make sure it gets used and it will get used in the right way. And then once people are established and they don't need it anymore, take it away. Otherwise, it's, it's just inefficient that every mechanic can use a checklist on every bike. Such a great idea there to get someone else to take ownership for it. And it just blossoms. I guess that would flow right into the next question that we have. There's five total here. Should I have one designated service writer or allow anyone on staff to do the write-ups? Lots of schools of thought on that. My own personal perspective is one person's not enough because nobody works seven days a week, at least I hope not. One person or two people are doing the check-ins. And that really should be your best mechanic because the best mechanic at check-ins is going to write the best tickets. The best tickets will have the least callbacks and the least approvals for updated quotes. They'll have the best products sold. So somebody that can also say, hey, it looks like you're changing cassette really worn. They need replacing. Your tires have got a couple of months in them now. Why don't you just do it right now so we can get it done? So those upsells. So I'd say having two people ideally per location capable of really selling and checking in service is the most efficient way to approach it. Yeah, that's a huge time savings when you don't have to call people back and follow up or get additional. There's a flowing me right into the next question. How best to communicate service messages with customers? Like your bike is ready, your bike needs more parts. Is it email, phone, text, a combination of? Was it like 3% of emails get opened? Our open rates are a lot higher than that at Conti's, but it's still not enough. It was like 56%, I think we get, which is great. But 20, 56% of people open their emails to find out if the service is done. That's not good. Phone calls, I don't know. Every time I call someone, I get voicemail, which is frustrating. So you can play phone tag, and that's fine. Text is definitely the best method that we have to communicate with our customers. We actually use HubTiger in Ponties and absolute game changer in terms of communication with customers about repairs. Was HubTiger on this podcast at some point? Yes, I think so. It's amazing. Yeah. I think their platform, they actually offer a discount to MBBA members. And oh, cool. Platform, you know, like assigning services to certain, like it just is amazing. It, it blew me away. It's such an efficiency tool. Yeah. The integrated communication they have on there is push notifications or if somebody has their app or SMS notifications. And that just completely changed how we were able to communicate with customers. Their integrated quote approval method as well is fantastic. You just punch in all the details, send quote for approval, customer approves it, you get a notification, you can do the work. You don't even have to talk to a customer. Yeah, simple. Then my final question, and I noticed Conti's because I saw you did use HubTiger. Should I'm considering using an online scheduling service to let customers book their own appointments? Any pluses or minuses with that? Lots of pluses and lots of minuses. Going to make sure the services you're offering are things that people can self-select. So not having your whole service menu out. Somebody selects replace bomb bracket. How do you know that that actually is the job that needs to be done? So the offering that we have online 
is very trimmed down into things that are very easy to understand, like a lot of e-bike builds. So e-bike build is one of the items available, flat repair. Then we have our annual service up there as well, because it's obvious. And we get a lot of people self-selecting their annual service online. So the minuses are letting people choose all the things they want. The pluses are you get some people booking them. Uh, I think it's been a year since we've been using Tiger platform, which also has online scheduling as part of its tool, which is great. It's growing, but it's only 5% of all of our services are booked online. So it's a small portion, but it is a portion. And nearly all those customers are new to us every time. So it's definitely a good thing to have. There's a lot of scheduling tools out there. You've got to find one that is easy to control. It has a great user experience on the website. And it has the ability to balance staff scheduling and availability with the jobs that are being booked as well. So having that mix is kind of key to it. Fantastic tip there to have items that people can self-select, like where can I get my e-bike bill or where can I get my flat fix? They're probably Googling this or whatever. If you have these items particularly on your service scheduler that people can self-select, that's fantastic. So we keep talking about this annual service. I have three questions for you myself. We know people based on our research, right? Maybe majority one time a year. I'm always thinking about ways that we can develop relationships with our customers to get them coming back to us. You know, it's before they leave. So they're picking up their bike. How can we get them to come back in to be repeat customers? Any tips or thoughts there to help us develop that relationship when they're interacting with us? It comes back to priming again. So just communicating with the customer about the things that they need. A really nice trick you can do if you offer bike fitting, everybody that comes in, mechanics should be looking at the setup of the bike and how it's positioned, saddle position, angle, et cetera. And there's always nearly a conversation you can have about saddle, saddle positioning or bar position that would develop into fit. So there's always that option with building that relationship. And we go back to, everybody coming in once a year, telling somebody, oh, thanks, here's your bike, see you next year. They might come back in, maybe. They might go somewhere else. So having a system that helps you reach out to them at that process, so like a an email or a text-triggered message, and I, I keep plugging HubTiger. HubTiger does that. So somebody's had a service a year later, it can send a text message saying, hey, it's been a year since you had your bike serviced. Would you like to schedule an appointment? So just that like simple reminder. It's like pretty much the only reason I go to the dentist is because I get a reminder to go to the dentist. So it works as well. Like everybody has experienced that. Just having that reminder is the best way to get them back in specifically for service. But that fit conversation is, is a really great one to have. I love that. You're so right about the dentist. And I'm always thinking about like the automotive industry. Like I get my oil change because I look up and I see this sticker. You know, what about the thought of like a follow-up email 30 days or text 30 days after service? Like, thank you. How's your bike? Would that work? Or is that too close to service? Or We do that. We do it after two weeks. And it's just a, an open line of communication with every bike that goes out. There's a follow-up that's sent. How was your service? And just a way of chatting to the customer. So it reminds me when I used to work in the UK, that sticker, when I used to work in the UK for Evan Cycles. We had a suspension servicing department and very busy. They had two full-time mechanics doing that, still going on today, I think. And they were servicing anywhere between 10 and 20 units a day 
for suspension. So there's one one location to do that for the 50 shops that Evan Cycles had, plus they did all of the shock servicing for Scott bikes in the UK too. But on every single fork that went back out, there was a little sticker that said next date for next service. And they just wrote the service on it, which was pretty cool. Wow. I would need that because I always forget. I just ride my stuff. <laughs> I'm so bad. I'm so shocked to know. But that's a great way that we can invite people back. I guess, you know, speaking of the automotive industry, you know, and the oil change sticker and how they run their service departments, they have express services, same day things, you know, pull up and get your oil changed. Should we be looking at the automotive industry, comparing what we're doing in the bicycle industry? Is there anything for guidance there, George? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that the automotive industry gets right. It's a need for nearly everybody in the country. So there's lots of different models that you can look at. It's kind of the GFILU model, which is the quick service. And I kind of regard that as triage. And with GFILU's model, you're, it's very clear what's going on. It is all prescriptive. Like you pull your car in, you go in, they get it done, and you walk out the other side, you grab it, and you go. And it's very typically very efficient. And it's very clear. It's very cost-effective, simple. Is it the best experience? No. Would you recommend it as an experience? Probably not. You're doing it because you have to, right? So I equate that to flat repair. So you're doing it because you have to. You don't necessarily want to be in the bike shop at that point, but you just got to get it done. So making it as easy as possible as to get the service, to get out the service, somewhere to sit while you're waiting, et cetera, and making that experience easy. There's always a water fountain and a coffee machine in a Jiffy Loop too. So those sort of elements can really help. But the bigger similarity is looking at a high-end car dealership. So the way high-end car dealerships work, everybody I'm sure has experienced it at some point. When you check your car in for service, it's very clean, it's very organized. The front desk staff are very well presented. They take down all your details. It's very friendly. It's a really nice environment, organized, well lit. You don't hear any of the noise at the workshop unless the door swings open and you hear all the guns going off and the wrenches being dropped. But you don't get to see the guts of what's going on, which is, to be frank, quite ugly. Like it's a lot of mess, it's loud, it's cold. Like it's not not the nicest place. So that's intentional so that you don't feel like you're dropping your car off at a scrapyard, for example. I know it's not that bad, but that is the point of doing that. So that directly correlates to a bike workshop. Bike workshops, when they've got bikes in them and their bikes are being worked on, it's very hard to keep those presentable. Most of them, even if they're great workshops, look terrible. To the layperson. So having your service area in terms of the design with a front of house triage area and then the back of house area is a key point that I personally design into every one of the stores that we open. I'm sitting over here smiling. So our listeners, you can't see me right now, but as George is talking, so with the, you know, I'm picturing, you know, the Jiffy Lube experience with that like coffee maker that you maybe want to touch and it's like disgusting and the catalogs that, oh. And then I recently got a sprinter van. So I went to the Mercedes place to have an oil change and I actually took a couple pictures of their lounge and sent it to my daughter. And I was like, look at the snacks. Like it was like totally different. (laughs) But I recognized it. And I think there's a tremendous opportunity for us to upscale the bicycle industry in this area. You know, we don't have to be the dirty, you know, front and center repair shop. It could be presented in more of a 
you know, a higher and more premium nature. So I love that analysis. You know, George, at the Sea Otter Summit this year, earlier in April, they had many presentations on technology and how technology is going to change our industry. And, you know, keeping an eye on that, is there any thoughts you have around how technology could play an impact in the service center of the future? I mean, we're already moving on to online scheduling. You know, I'm picturing like a conveyor belt that, you know, with computer images that we can scan bikes. <laughs> I mean, do you have any thoughts around how technology might play a role in the future? I think so. It's always a tricky one to like put your finger on. <laughs> There's really some cool stuff out there. There's some carbon fiber assessment technology that you can purchase and subscribe to. There's a lot, obviously, with apps and diagnosis of e-bikes that's going to become a lot more apparent. But really, just when it comes to consumer interactions with the store and technology, there's a huge opportunity for stores. Ultimately, at the end of the day, it's that one-to-one relationship with someone. So whatever technology is created, it really needs to enhance that connection, that personal connection to the mechanic for the rider. So I think that's where the opportunity is the most, whether that's video calls with the mechanic that you can schedule. So instead of coming into the store for a diagnosis, you can have a five-minute video call at your convenience, like stuff like that. Some stores started doing that during the pandemic with great effect. I think they stopped doing it, which surprised by, but I get. And I think making that easy is how technology can help us in the future. It's just connecting people more directly with people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And all these apps that are available to us to, you know, like HubTagger, I think has a mileage tracking app that you can use. To, you know, there's so much here coming in the future that exciting. Yeah. I'd, I'd hate to be a pitch HubTiger so much, but anybody who's listening to this, everybody should be using HubTiger in their service center. The cost is fantastic. The service from Stuart and the team, it's a really small team is excellent. And the way that they've designed their app and their service, riders can connect Strava to their Hub Tiger app. Then it shows you how much riding the bike has done. You can have individual components on there. And a rider can just message their mechanic from the app. If they're out on a ride and there's a funny noise, they can just say, hey, this noise started to develop. And they can attach a video to it straight away. And that comes through as just a notification on a browser application that service team use to manage HubTiger. And then it's just a quick like, oh, yeah, that, that could be because of this. Here's a solution you could try while you're out riding, but swing by the store and we'll get it fixed properly. So like That platform is has completely changed how we can communicate with riders. And I don't want to just pitch HubTiger, but I love it. You should all go and use it. Yeah, no, I appreciate that, George. And I was blown away by the capabilities. So just running back to the beginning here, the question is, you know, getting our listeners really to focus on making their service menu more profitable, easier for customers to self-select using a scientific method to go through it. George, you said you're on like your fifth rendition of your menu. Every time you make an update or a change, I'm sure you're communicating the changes to the staff and the reasoning behind. Do we need to communicate to our customers when we're doing a change to our service menu or should we just boldly go forward? No, you shouldn't need to communicate why the menu has changed or how the menu has changed. The results are really the communication, like measuring it as effective as trying to tell them because then you're seeing how the interactions change. And you're already going to let them know that you're thinking about, you know, their feelings when you're doing your research in the beginning, 
asking them, you know, what do you like about our service menu, right? So you're already kind of put it out there that you're interested in making changes to better accommodate your customers. Exactly. Yeah. Anything I missed here, George, like time with you just goes by so, so quickly. I guess maybe just some inspiration to help people really want to change their service menus is some results would be good to share. When you look at an average bike shop with those four levels, the lower level, second, third, fourth, 80% of all the units sold are typically that second level. When you change to this method with kind of the, the fifth Halo product, the anchoring, the primering, that third level becomes the 80%. Mm. Now, that increase in revenue on just the service menu alone is significant, but it will increase your service revenue. Let's say, and the cost of doing business report yesterday said it was like 15%, I think was the mix of service, whereas your last report a few years ago was 5%. Everything I've done to this was kind of pre-pandemic to get a bigger picture of data set across retailers. Most retailers are at 5% mix. And just introducing the service menu, on them up to 7% mix. As doesn't sound much, right? 2%. But on a million dollars a year, that's $20,000 extra. So for the sake of printing a service menu and training your staff, it's going to cost you all of maybe 30 bucks if you go to an expensive printer. 30 bucks investment, $20,000 return. Yeah, those are good hard numbers, George. <laughs> like, listeners, come on. This is easy. Yeah. But it's hard. It's hard sometimes, but you just got to start. George, thank you so much. There's so much here and I really appreciate you you know, volunteering your time and coming back on. I'm sure there's going to be some questions. I think last time you did share a contact, would you do that again? Yeah, that's fine. Best way to hit me up probably is on LinkedIn. So find me, George Lee, Conti Bikes. You should find me on LinkedIn. Just shoot me a message if you have any questions about the content and show Let's stay close up. It's so exciting to watch your career develop and see Conti's just, I mean, you've been increasing and just reaching more riders and growing cycling as a whole. Thank you so much, George. It's been great. Listeners, thank you for listening to Bicycle Retail Radio. If this is your first episode, take a look at the show notes from today. Listen to George's past episode. While you're there, tune into other episodes. There's lots of relatable nuggets here, lots of ways that you can make your business more profitable. Special thanks to MBDA Development Director, Rochelle Scout and for the editing and promotional graphics today. We appreciate your support. Thank you for listening. Go be great. This has been Bicycle Retail Radio by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. For more information on membership and member benefits, join us at nbda.com.